Welcome to the Hills Baptist Podcast. We're so glad you're joining us as we see Jesus glorified, lives transformed and hope revealed in the Adelaide Hills and beyond. We hope you enjoy this message. Lord God, we want to behold you again this morning. We just bring before, all, before you all our anxieties, all our worries, distractions, and we want to meet with you here that you might fill us, Lord Jesus, with your life, with your joy, with your strength as we feed on your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, have you heard or ever said, it is what it is? It is what it is. I was talking with another pastor the other day, he had this pretty important church meeting and he kind of just said, look, with resignation, it is what it is. Uh, an American president got in a bit of trouble during the pa- pandemic, describing the thousand deaths a day as people are dying, it's true, it is what it is. Uh, Britney Spears got caught driving with her baby son on her lap, her excuse, I made a mistake, and so it is what it is, I guess. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld in his recent comedy special, 23 Hours to, to Kill, describes it is what it is as the equivalent to air words that fill the room with meaningless sounds. He said he'd rather hear than someone say it is what it is. He says it's the same thing. Uh, Frank Bruni of the New York Times described the phrase as the most degrading sequence of five words in the English language. Joe Pickett of the American Heritage Dictionary writes, it is what it is, is a way of expressing philosophical resignation over a disappointment of saying that the situation just has to be put up with. Philosophical resignation over a disappointment. I'm gonna jump on the bandwagon here and agree, I hate the phrase, it is what it is, and let me tell you why. It's not what it is. It's not what it is. The situation does not require resignation nor just has to be put up with, and here's why. Things are not as they seem. Things are not as they seem. It's not what it is. So we continue a series on first love, refreshing a vision of Jesus in our hearts. I've been asked uh, by Dave to bring us to the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. And this is what I believe that the Lord has for us this morning. This is what I want us to take away. Take courage. Be faithful. Things are not as they seem. Take courage. Be faithful. Things are not as they seem. So I'm going to read to you from Revelation chapter 3, 19 and 20. I'm going to read it in context, so from verse 14. So if you've got a Bible there, it might be on the screen for you as well. Revelation chapter 3 from verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realise that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, 
and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love are rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone has ears, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus, he's standing at the door of the Laodicean church and he's asking to come in. But did you catch what the problem was, what their problem was? The problem with the Laodicean church was their false perception of reality. They, the, what, they saw things all wrong. They were living the wrong narrative. They thought they were one thing, but in fact, they were another. This was their narrative. They, they say, I, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. They thought they were this one thing, but reality was different. Jesus said, Really, you're poor, you're blind and naked. Jesus stood at the door asking for an entrance. You see, in their delusion, in their illusion, they displaced Jesus. They displaced Jesus with a counterfeit God, a false God. And in this false perception of reality, this, this illusion, their ministry just became useless. It says, lukewarm, useful for nothing. Their deeds are ineffective. The problem that faced Laodicea, this problem of perception, is what I believe the whole of Revelation is trying to address. You see, we can sometimes just think chapters two and three are the letters to the churches, but the whole of the letter of Revelation is a letter for these churches in Asia. And the purpose, I believe, of Jesus' revelation and John's writing of the book is to renew the church's vision of reality, the true, transcendent, spiritual, eschatological reality of Christ on His throne and His eternal, past, present, future victory. So if I was to summarise the purpose of the book of Revelation, it's not an encrypted timeline to be decoded, but a call to the church to faithfulness, to faithfulness in God's unfolding judgment amidst persecution and seduction, a call to faithfulness in the face of persecution and seduction. So why the imagery? I mean, is John on some sort of acid trip here? The apocalyptic imagery can feel this way. Why does God reveal it to John in this way? Why does John write it down as such? Well, I think it's because imagery can can not only reveal something, but evoke something, make us feel something. An image will stir our spirits, not just our minds. Images are so important. Revelation is packed with these pictures that stir our imaginations, that stir us to perceive what is imperceptible, to, to comprehend what is incomprehensible. It's a call to a theological imagination. An imagination a theological narration of reality to see beyond, 
See beyond what is just on the surface. And this, I believe, is especially important in our cultural moment. You see, people are not losing faith because of reason. Young people are not calculating the probabilities of an existence of God. Not many people are asking logical questions or debating the historicity of the Gospels. Rather, people are told a story, painted a picture of the moral life, and it's a compelling picture. Live your truth. You do you. Love is love. You only live once. These are not rational explanations of reality. These are stories. It's a picture. It's like a painting. And the picture painting is seemingly beautiful. And in contrast, the picture painted of Jesus and Christianity, it's, it's a picture of oppression and, and restriction of freedom. And so why I think Revelation is so great for us is because it invites us to this imagination, to a picture, to stir something in our hearts that Jesus is not only true, but he is beautiful. In the book of Revelation, we're invited to see with not only our minds, but with our spirits, a vision of reality beyond what we can just comprehend or perceive with our eyes. In other words, it's not what it is. It's not what it is. And so this is where I want to take us today in three parts. Number one, that which seems good. Number two, that which is. And then number three, reframing, changing the way we think, reframing reality. And through this, my hope for us is that our spirits are going to be stirred to take courage, be faithful. Things are not as they seem. Things are not as they seem. Let's start with that which seems good. That which seems good. Let me start firstly here, the surface reality. Uh, when I was in the States, uh, my brother Nick came and visited me and he wanted to visit Harvard uh, and buy one of those ha cool Harvard sweaters. Uh, I said, okay, so we sort of made our way there and honestly, Harvard campus is not as, it's a bit, a bit underwhelming, but we sort of visited all the swag shops, try and find this Harvard sweater. And they were just astronomically expensive. And so we just didn't bother. We said, forget it. And so as we're leaving, we sort of come down into the subway station. And there's this street vendor. And there's this Harvard sweater. Nick has a look. It looks pretty good. This is awesome. We found one. Half the price. Bargain. So he buys it. We get home into a bit more light. He puts it on and he realises, I don't know if you've ever seen or spent time with Nick, this Harvard sweater. It's kind of, it's actually off centre. <laughs> and it's a bit skewed. It's a counterfeit. It's a fake it seemed like the real deal, but he wasted his money. See, John, in his letter, warns of a counterfeit reality, a fake. This is one of the key themes. I'm going to jump around a bit, but it's beautiful once you start to see it. Uh, John describes chapter 13. Chapter 13, this beast, the earth being deceived into worshipping this beast. The beast who wages war against God's holy people to conquer them, who persecute the church. This beast, but if you look closely at this beast, he shares a striking resemblance with the lamb described in chapter five. He's a counterfeit, a fake. I think I've got the two passages up here. Both have many heads and horns. Both have a mortal wound that is healed. A mortal wound means they died and then is healed. As Christ is given authority by God, so too this beast is given authority by the dragon. The beast then seduces worship away from Christ to himself. 
It's likely these allusions to the Roman Empire of his day, promising peace, but demanding that they worship Caesar, to say Caesar is Lord. And then the second beast too, somewhat a parody of the Holy Spirit, becomes the propaganda machine for the first beast. And so the dragon and these two beasts becomes this unholy trinity. This unholy trinity, a counterfeit God, a fake, that deceive people, lead them astray. And then the number of the beast, 666, is a perfect counterfeit to the number that you would expect of perfection, 777. And so John, in these pictures, in these visions, he warns the church, our allegiance owed to the true God is being seduced away to another. Can we stop for a moment and consider those things in our life that take away our affection from God and demand our allegiance? That stand in the place of God in our worship. Perhaps it's a job, a partner, a political movement or an identity that demands our allegiance and our worship. And this counterfeit God, this unholy trinity, then brings forth the ultimate counterfeit city, depicted as Babylon, the great prostitute. Let me show you. Turn with me to chapter 17. This is fascinating. Verse 1, John describes one of the seven angels coming, saying, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute. Verse 3, the angel carried him away in the spirit into a wilderness to show him the woman. In verse 4, he sees that she is dressed in purple and was glittering with gold precious stones and pearls. This description of Babylon is this sick parody of what ultimately will win the day, the city of God. Jump forward to chapter 21. In verse 9, John describes, hear the echo here, one of the seven angels saying, come, I will show you the bride. Verse 10, John is carried away in the spirit to a mountain. And shown the holy city, Jerusalem, shining the glory of God. And in verse 19, the city is adorned with what? Precious stones. What is clear, John is telling the tale of two cities. A tale of two cities. The counterfeit city of man compared with the eternal city of God. This is the danger of sin and idolatry. On the surface, it seems good. We wouldn't want it if it was bad. But sin takes what God has made, twists it and distorts it and destroys us. Think about technology as an example. The ability to unlock creativity and productivity. But twisted and distorted to exploit the environment. Our attention and used in warfare See, Babylon has the appearance of offering heaven on earth. But as John graphically portrays, she's she's just an illusion, a counterfeit of the real thing. And in her seduction will lead many astray in her exploitation, her drunkenness, and ultimately her destruction. This is the warning for our time too. The culture around us will want to offer us heaven on earth. A utopia of pleasure and wealth, of luxury and comfort, or a way of life marked by this pursuit of wealth and pleasure and power and success that looks good on the surface, but in reality is an illusion. It's like biting into an apple, but just eating sand. In what ways 
Are we being seduced by Babylon, seduced by this illusion that the sum of our existence is just self-expression or success or comfort? That's the reason of life. Instead of a relationship with our Creator, with God. In what ways do we feel powerless, conquered by this beast under its persecution? See, John invites us to see a different reality. To peel back the layers and lies of Satan. To see the serpent for who he really is, a counterfeit, a fake. The deceiver ever since the beginning. The one who was able to take what is good, the the generosity of God, and twist it with a question and say, did God really say? And you will not surely die. Who are we going to believe? What vision will we trust? Things are not as they seem. What looks like something on the outside, what seems good in reality is something else. And this was the paradigm for the churches in Asia that John's writing to. He says of Sardis, he says, they've got the reputation of being alive, but they're dead. And Laodicea here, they've got, they think they're rich, this perception. He says, you're You're poor. You've missed it. You've got it all wrong. Their perception of reality was false. The way they saw things was wrong. And you know, we're vulnerable to these counterfeit, these fake narratives, to narratives of despair that we have no power as a church, that we're losing, that we're crushed, or narratives of lies. We buy into the world's story of what the good life is, what wealth is, what the meaning of life is, what is moral, what is immoral. Ultimately, into worship of false idols. I love the movie uh, Sea Beasts. It's on Netflix, if anyone with kids has seen it. Great movie. But what I love about this movie is the pa- it shows the power of a story. So you have this little girl, Maisie, and she's sitting in this orphanage and she's surrounded by these other orphans and they're they're sort of under the dim candlelight and she opens up this book, The Tale, and got there, of Captain Crow. This story, the story of the sea beasts and the hunters. The sea beasts were these big kraken-like monsters that would ravage these cities and destroy them until the royals commissioned this group of seafarers, these hunters who would go out heroically into the seas, find the beasts before they come to the cities and destroy them. And so Maisie, she recites the hunter's code to live a great life, to die a great death. So what does Maisie do? Takes her book, she's got it in hand, she escapes the orphanage and she runs and she jumps onto one of these ships. But the dream soon wears off the reality of the dangers of sea set in. In her adventure on the, on the ship, she is eventually confronted with the truth. The truth was that the sea beasts were not the enemies. These poor animals were just trying to protect themselves. Maisie later, she, she opens this book. She's still got the tale of Captain Crow and she opens it and the inside cover is this royal sigma and it dawns on her She's been told a story that was all a lie. The truth had been suppressed as this ploy by the royals to keep money and keep power. 
But the story had shaped her whole world. To live a great life, to die a great death, it was no great life after all. It was a lie. Things are not as they seem. The narrative that we are told is really not a great life after all. It's perception of reality. What's true? Do we see? Uh, Joshua Chatteror says this. I've got the quote up here. The pursuit of individual freedom has meant losing true love. Consumerism has led to despair. And our pop psychology has removed neither our guilt nor our anger. And with the loss of a traditional understanding of sin, we've also lost the resources needed to truly forgive and find peace with one another. The cultural narratives that promised heaven on earth have instead led us to a very different place. Like Maisie, you realise as she snuck on the ship, the reality of battling the sea beast wasn't some dream adventure. It's actually a place of fear and confusion. The story was wrong. Babylon is a counterfeit. It's a fake. And so we need to reframe our reality. Things are not as they seem. Well, let's take a look then at that which is. That which is. This is what John invites us to see. In Revelation chapter 4, John is whisked up into into the throne room of God. In chapter 5, John sees that God is seated on the throne and he's holding this scroll. What is the scroll? Sort of an abstract level. It's the achievement of God's kingdom and the unfolding of his redemptive plan. But the scroll is sealed. An angel cries out in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But there's no one. No one can open it. And so there's tears in heaven. John weeps. He weeps because there's no one worthy. No one who is there who can triumph. But then one of the elders in the throne room points and he says, look, see, the lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. The lion of Judah is the image of a messianic conqueror, a picture of military might and kingship, a mighty victor who can open the scroll. The lion looks, see, see. And then John, he looks. The paradox. He looks. What does he see? He doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb. Not just a lamb, but a lamb has been slain. I love that Josh mentioned this poor lamb that died this morning. Can you picture the vulnerability of this animal? And the elders in this throne room are pointing at this and saying, the lion, the lion. And he looks, he sees a lamb. This is the paradox. Victory would come. Victory would come not through military might or political power, but through a sacrifice. True power and glory is seen in Jesus who emptied himself. This is might. This is triumph. Jesus' way of conquering, his triumph was the cross. The beast trampling on the saints, that is not victory. The lamb. As the book of Revelation attests, that's victory. 
This is the triumph of God and His love for the world. His love for you. This is the gospel. Revelation chapter 1 verse 5 says this, Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth to Him who loves us and freed us from our sins by His blood and has made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve His God and Father. To Him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. This is our vision. This is our vision. Look and see and behold the Lamb. That is triumph. That is what is. I consider quickly uh, chapter 7 of Revelation because this then becomes the way of seeing the world. At chapter 7 of Revelation, John hears, verse 4, he hears the number of those who are sealed, 144,000 from the tribes of evil. It's if he's just taken it from the, the book of Numbers, this counting of, of God's armies, God's eschatological army of God. He, he hears the sound of what he thinks is military might, but then he looks. Verse 9, he, he hears this, but he looks, and there before him, what does he see? A great multitude from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people and language standing before the Lamb. And these people, they're dressed in the righteous robes of Christ, washed in the blood of the Lamb. The diverse worshipping community of the saints is the picture of triumph. Church gathered here this morning in worship of Christ is a picture of victory and a picture of triumph. To worship is to conquer. To praise is our triumph. To die to ourselves, to pick up our cross, to humble ourselves in love and in service. As we empty ourselves as Christ did, as we love one another here, as we love the world, this is victory, not riches, not political power, not popularity, not some conspiracy theory. The way of the Lamb is victory. That is what is. Jesus who died and who rose again, who emptied himself, that is victory. So Jesus, he stands at this door with an invitation. He says, here I am, the lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. I stand at the door and I knock. You know, our instincts are, we, we want to be justified. We want our entitlements. We want to make ourselves great. We want our way in the conflict. We're ambitious, we're self-centered, but the surprising majesty of Christ is death, a death to self. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Things are not as they seem. Things are not as they seem. So take courage, be faithful, faithful to this picture of Christ. He is our vision of triumph. So like Maisie, we need a new story, a new story that helps us see the world, a different reality to shape our lives, rejecting the fake, the allure of the counterfeit, beholding the surprising majesty of Christ. So we need to reframe our reality. If the problem with the Laodicean church was their perception, the way they saw, then they needed to see differently. They needed to restore their minds. This is what Paul prays to the Ephesian church. He says, I pray that the eyes of their hearts might be enlightened to the hope to which they had been called. 
or he prays to the Colossians. He says, since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, not on earthly things. Set your minds on things above. For you died and your life is now hidden with God. And this leads me to my third point for this morning. Reframing our reality, changing the way we see. We must reframe our reality in light of Jesus. So what does that look like? What does that look like? Number one, reframe or change the way you think about what victory looks like and the strategies that we use to get it. Change the way you think about what does it mean to win? What does it mean to triumph? Is it winning an argument with your husband or with your wife? Is it getting that promotion at work, even if it means, you know, some bit of a shady business deal? Is it getting your own way? Is it elevating yourself and your own rights and entitlements? Actually, true victory, true victory in the way of the Lamb is sacrificial love of self-giving, self-denial. So we need to reframe what victory looks like. Secondly, reframe what wealth and health looks like. Change the way of what it means to be rich. The Laodiceans, they thought they were rich. But really, they were poor. I mean, do we, do we feel less of a church for not having, you know, buildings and all those kind of things? Is our picture of rich getting the new car, having the lavish holiday, crafting the perfect body? Or can we be rich towards God, treasure in heaven? Beholding, beholding what is truly valuable and that which lasts forever. So change the way what you think wealth and health looks like. And thirdly, reframe what it is you fear. Change the way that we think about what it is that we fear. Is it posture toward the world, the way we see the world, is it fear or is it love? Are we afraid of culture, afraid of society? Are we afraid of losing our power, losing our status, losing our privilege as the church for following Christ? Might we see like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego thrown into the fiery furnace that there was another one with them? Change the way, who it is that we fear? The saints under the feet of the beast being trampled on. It may look as if they are conquered. This is what Revelation is asking us to see. see. But in Christ, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. So we can love sacrificially, not fearing that which can destroy only body, but cannot destroy the soul. Uh, let me finish by returning to our passage for this morning, these two verses. Chapter 3, verse 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. This is the lamb. He says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Just a couple of things. The Lord's discipline is an expression of his love, not his abandonment. Maybe you're going through some serious trials at the moment. Maybe you've turned your back on God and you feel, you feel the pain of His reproach. Let me say this morning, God has not abandoned you. God has not abandoned you. He loves you. And this then is the call, the invitation. He says, be earnest. 
Renew your passions for Jesus. Remember, remember what He has done for you. He has done it all. The Lamb who, who died on the cross, that He would take the sins of the world, our sins, our shame, our brokenness, our weakness, He would take it to the cross and He would deal a final blow. He would say, it is finished. It is done. And He would raise to new life and victory that we too may share in this eternal inheritance, this eternal hope. If you're here this morning and you don't know that for yourself, the invitation is for you to believe, to trust, to see the Lamb as victory, victory for your life this morning. So be earnest, zealous again. Might we care as much about the Lord's glory as we do about the football? It doesn't matter now though, but Adelaide and Port are out of the finals. But Be earnest. And then he says, and repent. Turn away from the patterns of wrong thinking. Turn away. Turn away from the sin, the greed, the lust, the hatred, the unforgiveness, the self-centeredness. Turn away from it. Turn back to God. And here is the promise for those who will hear and open the door, allow Jesus to come in, to be Lord of our home, to be Lord of our hearts. This is the promise. He says, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. It's a picture of a table, of eating at the table. It's a picture of hospitality. It's a picture of welcome, of safety and honour. There's no shame, no I told you so's, no more guilt. Jesus holds out restoration. He holds out his blessing. He holds out his presence. Do we have eyes to see and ears to hear? Things are not as they seem. Is it just, it is what it is? Is your failure, it is what it is? Is your addiction, just, it is what it is? Is the shame of your past, it is what it is? Or whatever sort of difficulty that you're finding yourself, the disappointment of your life, it is what it is? Must we give up, resign to the disappointment of our lives? No. This is what I want to tell you this morning. This is what John asked us to see. No, look again at the Lamb. Behold the Lamb. He stands at the door and He knocks. He's wanting to come in to see again, to change the way we see the world. Flip it all upside down, the Kingdom of God and all its glory. So reject the counterfeit. Reframe your reality. Behold Jesus in His surprising majesty of the Lamb, the Lamb who was slain. Things are not as they seem. Take courage. Be faithful. Take courage. Be faithful. I want to finish for us this morning uh, by, by reading this and praying this for us from 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16 to 18. This is where we'll conclude. From 2 Corinthians 4, it says, from verse 16, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Let me pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we want to behold You again this morning. 
We can't see you with our eyes, but Lord, we look at you with our spirits and we see again that you are the lamb who was slain in all your glory, Jesus. Your cross is beautiful. That at the cross, we find freedom. We find purpose. We find our hope. That Lord, you are restoring all things. You are restoring this creation. We know that you grieve over its brokenness, but we know that Christ is victorious. And Lord, you are coming again. As this wonderful book of Revelation reminds us, Lord Jesus, of the city of God that one day will be our home here. You are restoring all things. Lord, we look to you now. So Lord, we're sorry for the ways that we have had our eyes on ourselves. Lord, we've been afraid. We've been scared. We've been selfish. We've despaired. But Lord Jesus, I thank you for your love. I thank you for your compassion as you lift us up. You lift us up and you invite us to see and behold you again. You are there. You are with us. Your promise is to be with us to the very end of the age. So Lord, again, I pray as Paul prayed that you would open our eyes, enlighten our hearts that we might comprehend, we might see the hope of the riches of the glorious inheritance that is ours in Christ Jesus. Lord Jesus, I pray that since we have been raised with you, that you would set our hearts, set our minds upon you that through you we might see everything else. So Lord, help us to do this. You deserve all the glory. So we wanna be that worshiping community, this diverse worshiping community from every tongue, tribe and nation. We join in. We join in in the praises before the Lamb. Holy, 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 worthy are you, Lord. And as we praise, we know we triumph, we conquer because of what you have done. So we love you, Lord Jesus, and we look to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Hills Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to partner with us in developing and equipping passionate disciples who love God, love people, and boldly share the gospel, you can do that at hillsbaptist.com forward slash giving. We pray this message has empowered you to live and love more like Jesus. Have an amazing day.